Well, as we enter the fall season, uh, with the cool temperatures and the leaves changing, uh, there's a lot of things that are taking place that we are anticipating and looking forward to. One of the other things that's happening is we're in the midst of this very long, overextended, protracted presidential campaign, and someone made the comment to me, oh yeah, we have to vote next month. I was like, no, that's a year from next month is when we actually have to do that. And as you listen to these candidates, you have any interest in that, I'm not going to comment on them at all this morning, but as you listen to them and hear them, one of the things that they do is they make promises because they're trying to solicit votes. And so they promise things to people and promise things to the country that if they're elected to become president, this is what they'll do. And yet one of the things they very quickly discover is that in order to make those things happen, they have to go through these two groups of people known as the House and the Senate to be able to get those things approved. And so making promises is not as easy as it is to keep the promises. But I think in all of our lives, we recognize how vitally it is important for promises to be kept. And this is something that starts even when we're very young, when, when uh, mom or dad might make a promise to us, and for some reason, they can't come through and keep that promise. And some of you maybe still remember a promise that was never kept even at that age. And yet as a child, you know how important it is that even when you tell a good friend, you know, now don't tell anybody, keep this secret, that they keep that promise to you. But it moves beyond that as you move into, as you move into sports and athletics and coaches promise you everybody will get a fair shot. Will they get a fair shot? Or will the favorites get their position and get the opportunities to step to the front? Or you get your first job and you're offered opportunities and promotions and more advancement and you wonder... You go into that optimistically and later on you wonder, will they come through? Will they do what they said they promised to do? And then as you make the commitment to pledge your life to another person, to a woman or a man that you love, and um, you certainly hope they will keep their promise to love, honor, and cherish um, because that's the basis of you entering even into that covenant of marriage with them. And so for most of us, what we realize very quickly in life and over time it gets confirmed is that not only making promises, but those promises being kept to us is very, very important. And this morning we're going to look at a question that doesn't relate to that with other people, but really relates to God. Because a lot of people wonder, does God keep His promise? Does God keep His promise? And this morning we're going to look at a way in which God kept His promise that leaves us a bit confused that leaves us a bit wondering, what is God really up to? As we look at this question, does God keep His promise? Does He keep His word? If you haven't been here with us, we've been in a series entitled Unlikely Hero, um, based on the life of David. Uh, David was a young man in the Old Testament who we first met as a shepherd boy and then became a giant killer and then became a military leader and now is a fugitive on the run for his life. And his life is intertwined with a few other characters in this story. One of those characters is a man who became his best friend, Jonathan, who ironically was also the son of the king, whose name was Saul. And Saul was a king who started out with great promise and with great opportunity to be chosen by God and, 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 and a military battle, but very quickly his life and career and direction turned south. And in spite of the fact that David killed this giant and defeated the giant, wiping off one of his nemesis off the face of the earth, and then proceeded to have multiple military battles which would have been expanded Saul's territory and his region and his stretch as king of Israel. Saul did not view those things in a positive light. Instead, his fragile emotional state created a deep sense of paranoia that we're going to see today becomes full-blown, tragically. In the midst of all of this, 
um, God shows up over and over and over again. And it's a bit confusing because sometimes God shows up in stories and in situations that are odd, that are strange, that are um, a little embarrassing. And today we're going to see that are tragic. And this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christ follower, I hope that hearing this story will deepen and strengthen your faith and your resolve and your belief in God doing what He says He's going to do. And if you're here this morning and you're on a journey and you've come back to God or you're back, someone brought you to church this morning, you're checking out faith, you maybe have been here for a few different weeks and you're exploring what this following God thing is all about or, or re-engaging in that in your own personal journey, um, this morning we're going to talk about some pretty important questions that you may have about God and uh, attempt to give some answers to them. And I hope that the answers I give will give you confidence that you are on the right path and that you can take one more step towards a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22. If you don't have a Bible, our guys have some of them. They're making them available to you. The page number's on the screen for you to follow along in the Bibles that they're distributing. 1 Samuel 22. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, let me just reconnect you to the story. Um, David is on the run. He's had a price put on his head. Saul's attempted to take his life on several different occasions. And he takes off. He has no food, no weapons. He's all by himself. And then last week, if you weren't here with us last week, you can go online and listen to the messages, kind of get caught up in where we are in the series. But um, he comes across a priest on his way out of town. And he asks this priest, he kind of concocts this story to not only protect him, but hopefully the priest. And then he says to the priest, he said, do you have any food? My men need food. And he gives him some food. He said, do you have a weapon? And he gives him the sword that David used to collect, kill Goliath. And so he passes that along to him as well. And so David heads out of town with those things in hand. And as he heads out of town in, in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, it says, when his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. When we last met David and his brothers, they were not real thrilled with him. Because he stepped out of the family order. Remember, he's the youngest brother. And he made the big brothers kind of look bad when he wiped out Goliath and none of them had the courage to stand up to him. But they hear their brother's in trouble and they come to him. Now, we don't really know why. We don't know if they just knew he was in trouble and they wanted to support him and be there as, as families sometimes can when someone's going through a difficult time. There's also the possibility that Saul had said to them, if David comes around and you don't tell, me, uh, tell us where he is, then we're going after you. And we're going to see that's, that being lived out in another scenario a little bit later in the story. So David heads out to the western edge of the Judean territory, um, goes to a cave, and his family members come there. But as David heads out to this cave, um, there's a few individuals that join David. Uh, look at the verse on the screen at who comes and join him. All those who are in distress in debt or discontented gathered around him. How's that sound for your new workforce that you're working with, you know? Here's your new work crew, you know? Everybody that's just, their life is a mess. They owe people money out the wazoo, and basically they're, nobody's going to make them happy. You know, some of you are saying, that sounds like where I'm going tomorrow, you know? Um, but that's who David had. And, and ironically, you'll see later in the story as these individuals who life had some of them just given them a bad hand, if you will. Things had not gone well. Those in debt 
were not because they overspent like we do in our culture. Those in debt were because they had had a tragedy or their crops were wiped out because of a storm or a natural disaster and they had to borrow just to live. So these are not people that were bad people. They just had misfortune come their way. And lastly, those that weren't happy about anything. But ironically, David, because of his leadership capacity, is able to turn this 400 ragtag group of merry men into what is known as mighty men later in the story of David. So David gathers them all around and and he takes this group of men and they actually go across the border from the land of Israel into the land of Moab. And that land is somewhat significant because in the story of David's family history, his great-great-grandmother was an Israelite and there were there was a famine in the land and the place that she went to get food was the land of Moab. And so for a second time, David goes to Moab. The first time his family went there to get food, his great-grandmother married his great-grandfather there and they eventually made their way back to the land of Israel. But the second time he goes there for safety and security. And so David gets everybody settled there in the land of Moab, finds out they'll be okay. And then the prophet of Gad says to him, David, you can't stay here. You've got to go back. And Remember, prophets were the individuals that God spoke to the prophet. Priests were the one that served God and the people. The prophets listened to the voice of God. And so one of the things that we'll see even more next week is how David carefully listened to God's direction in his life. But we get a glimpse of that here in this story. And so David heads back. <clears throat> And as David head back, heads back, we're going to look at a story this morning that takes place that, <clears throat> excuse me, when I initially looked at this story, I, didn't, I was going to skip over it and go to the next chapter. Um, because it's a hard story to look at. It's a hard story to read. It's, it's just awful. I don't know any nice way to spin it. It's just flat out awful. But to ignore stories like this in the Bible that are hard and difficult for us to look at, they set a dangerous pattern because the reality is is we live in a world filled with awful things that take place. And the question is, what do I do with the awful things that happen in this world? But maybe even deeper than the awful things that happen in this world that we have to see and encounter are the awful things that we know that sometimes are buried deep in our hearts and our soul the things that are true of us that we hope no one discovers, finds out, or uncovers. And so this morning, as we look at this awful tragedy that happened in the story of David, my hope and prayer is that it gives us glimpses of how we look at those things in our world and then in our own personal lives. Because we're all faced with them. So what happens in this story? Well, in verse 6, Saul had discovered where David was at. Um, He had spies all all around the land, and someone found out where David was at. And so the word got back to Saul. And Saul was in the town of what was known as Gibeah. And in in the town of Gibeah, that's kind of where the seat of power, that's where Saul and his military leaders and political officials were located. And so Saul's there with his spear in verse 7, and he's there with all of his officials. And listen to the words that Saul says in verse 7. He says this, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Now, remember I mentioned that 
Saul has this level of paranoia taking place because people are singing songs about David. His own family members have started to turn towards David. And so Saul is recognizing that the, that the tide is shifting away from him and towards David. <clears throat> and so he makes this statement to his men. He said, has David given you anything that you have? Has he given you, expanded your property? Has he expanded your influence? Look what he goes on to say in the next verse. He said, no one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. He's referring to his son Jonathan, and the son of Jesse is David. No one of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me today, or lie in wait for me as he does today. Now, one of the, one of the things that we talk about all the time around here is um, how to talk to one another in healthy ways. And one of the things that we try to avoid in our conversation is two words that are always and never. And no one is another one of those words. Because when we make those statements of always and never, we're using phrases of exclusivity or inclusivity that usually and rarely are ever true. And look what, look what Saul says. He says, no one of you is concerned about me. Not a single one of you cares about me. No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with his son Jesse. How does he even know that they all know? Or that my son incited my servant to lie in wait, which based on the story we know is not true. So Saul, his paranoia has gone into a full-blown state here where everyone is after him, no one cares about him, and there's plots for his life that are being secretly concocted in the back alleyways of his kingdom. As the story is unfolding, I imagine his officials and his military leaders are sitting there really quiet, hoping nobody rocks the boat. Because... Saul is a loose cannon, and you have no way of knowing what he's going to do next. In the midst of this happening, a man speaks up, a man by the name of Doeg, who is an Edomite. And listen to what he says in verse 9. I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahiatib at Noab, the priest. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions in the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. Now, if you're here this last week, you know that the second two things he said were true. Did he give him food? Yes. Did he give him a sword? Yes. Did he inquire of the Lord for him? No. So Doeg, who is an enemy fighter from the land of Edom, comes and tells the king, this is what I saw, king. And the king takes his words Hook, line, and sinker. What does the king do? He said, go get him. Go get all the priests. And so he got all the priests, and the king says, listen to me. He says, why have you conspired against me, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me even as he does today? Saul's tone in the way he says this is not a tone of question. It's a tone of accusation. Saul believes Doeg. Saul believes everything that this guy's saying. And he's already accused. And we're going to see what else he does in just a moment. 
Doeg says, or excuse me, Ahimelech says, Saul, I don't really understand this. He said, the one servant of yours that's most loyal to you is David. Think about this with me. He's your son-in-law, first of all. He's the captain of the guard, second of all. He's the most honored man in your military, third. He says in verse 15, Was that day the first time I inquired of, of God? For him, of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant, nor his servant's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. Do you remember what Ahimelech was told by David? Why he came to him for, without any food or a sword? He said, I'm on a secret mission for the king. So he's told David's on a secret mission. He says, oh, sure, I'll help you. What do you need? You need this? Sure, I'll, you need this? Okay. And now the king re- brings him in, reads him the riot act, and says, why are you conspiring against me to kill me? Ahimelech tries to defend himself, but to no avail. Look at the king's response in verse 16. You will surely die, you and your entire family. This is a stunning turn of events. Ahimelech is a priest. He's a man who serves God. And now he's been given a death sentence by this crazy man, Saul. And Saul goes on then to say to his military, go kill all of the priests that are associated, that are related to Ahimelech. And the priests say, oh, excuse me, the soldiers say, not doing it. Not doing it. Not going to touch the hand of the priest of the Lord. So Saul now has had his son, Jonathan, his daughter, Michael, who's married to David, turn against him. He's had the tide of the people turn against him. And now his own military will not even back a command that he gives to them. And you just see Saul's influence waning and becoming less and less and less and less. And in the midst of thinking, well, maybe this bad thing isn't really going to happen, Doeg speaks up once again. And he says, um, I'll do it. I'll do it. In verse, eight, verse 18, it says, Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod, the clothing of the priest. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priest, with its men, women, children, infants, its cattle, its donkeys, and its sheep. And you read that story and you think about this awful tragedy. And you're like, why did that have to happen? Why, why did that have to happen? I understand that there was some confusion that the priest was told one story, but this is not the real story. This is the story. Oh, now I understand that story, and he's actually a fugitive. Okay, I won't do that again, and we'll, we'll make sure that doesn't happen again, and we'll, we'll be okay. But he said, you and everyone... Life over. End of story. And I don't know about you, but when I read stories like this, I find myself wondering, okay, God, there could have been some other way. Couldn't there? Um, Did it have to include the infants and the children? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. but this story is connected to a bigger story. And the bigger story is in the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. 
If you want to turn back a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 2, I want to read a couple verses for you from 1 Samuel chapter 2, but let me tell you what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's coming right on the heels of the time period in the life of the people of Israel called the Judges. And what the book of the Judges was all about, this season in the life of Israel, was by, known by one phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not everyone followed God. Everyone did what they wanted to do. Not everyone followed the king. Everyone did what they wanted to do. And that even included the priest. One man tried to make a difference. His name was Eli. And he tried to stand up and honor God in the ways that he thought that he knew, or in the ways that he knew that he should. But even he could not influence his sons to do this. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it records what would happen. The people would bring their sacrifices, which would be a, a, a certain part of a lamb or a part of their flock, and they would offer these sacrifices to God as payment for their sins, as ways to thank God for all of His provision. And what would happen is the priest would get a small portion of that, and that's how the priest would live, because the priest did not raise livestock or work a farm. The priest would live off of a small portion. What these priests were doing, they're like, Thank you very much for your food. Okay, oh, we're going to take this prime. We're going to take that, that sirloin. Okay, we're taking all the nice cuts, all the nice pieces, and we're saving them for ourselves. Okay, nobody's looking. All right, here you go. Here's the rest on the sacrifice for God. That's one of the things the priests were doing. But there's a second thing that the priests were doing. The priests were having sex with women who were serving the temple as well. Following the example of the temple prostitutes in the pagan religions. They had completely turned their back on God. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And it was a horrible, horrible abomination to God Himself. And so God said this in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. He says, Therefore the Lord the God of Israel declares, and this is what God had promised to Eli's ancestors, Aaron, I promise that the members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. And that's what was happening here. So what was the consequence going to be? A time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Oops, can we go back to the previous slide there? Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will reach old age basically said the rest of your family is going to come to an untimely death and an age before they should now verse 33 every one of you that i do not cut off from serving my altar i will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of your life ahimelech and his family that lost their lives were the direct descendants of eli and God did exactly what He promised He was going to do. You say, but John, that doesn't make me feel any better. I, I still don't understand. Why did God have to allow this to happen? Couldn't He have taken them out with a mudslide? Or couldn't He have opened up a hole in the earth and they swallowed them? He's done those things before. Why this horrible massacre? Why did this have to happen? Does God fulfilling His promises have to work out that way? 
The truth about the story is, God never said to Saul, go have Doeg wipe these people out. God never said that. God never said to Saul, have Doeg go wipe them out, wipe them all out. But the events that occurred accomplished the prophecy that God had made. And sometimes the events that occur in our lives are a part of a bigger plan that God is at work. Even though it doesn't make any sense to us in the moment in time. But the questions of why didn't God protect the innocent? Is God able to accomplish His promises without such horror? Does that justify the genocide of these people by doing because it allowed God's promises to be fulfilled? Why does God permit these horrible tragedies that only seem to increase? Like the one we just experienced with the shooting out in the college in Oregon. I get that Saul was a madman, but wasn't there some other way? And I wish I could tell you that there was. I wish I could say, yes, God was going to accomplish His purposes and He's going to, do, he's going to accomplish His purposes and His plan in a way that's not going to bring about pain or suffering or sadness or tragedy in anyone's life. But unfortunately, life doesn't work like that. You say, well, I don't know that I want to have anything to do with that kind of a God or that kind of a plan. David seemed to recognize the awfulness of this tragedy. Because look what he says in the end of chapter 22. One man escaped. One man escaped. A grandson of Ahimelech, Abathar. And he told Saul that David had killed, that he told David that Saul had killed all the priests. And David said that day, this is what he said to Abathar. He said, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that David bears full responsibility for this whole situation. Does David bear some? Some. Was he there and he saw this man who was a foreign military fighter and have a sense that this guy is going to do something awful? He knew, he had a sense of that. And I think what David did is he took some responsibility and then he acted. Look what he says in the next verse. He said, stay with me, I will protect you. You will be safe with me. And David protected him for the rest of his life. Sadly, David takes on this much responsibility for something that appears to be this much of his. Where Saul is unwilling to take on any and the result is a horrible massacre. So let me ask you this. What do you do with this confusing mix of God doing what He said He's going to do, but horrible tragedies that happen in our world and sometimes in our lives? If you, decide, if you decide that to believe in the God of the Bible, there must be no pain or tragedy. The only way that's going to happen is for God to eliminate all of mankind because the pain and the tragedy comes from human beings, people like me and like you. 
If you conclude, conclude like Thomas Paine did in the Age of Reason that the Bible is the work of a demon more than the Word of God, where does that lead your wrestling of your faith? The truth is, tragedy like this will not stop until man stops choosing his own way. So what do we do with things like the awful tragedy of 9-11, the horrible tragedies like Boko Haram and the brutal killings by the Nigerian Islamic extremist groups, the recent beheadings by the ISIS groups in the Middle East, or the tragic shootings on the college campuses in the state of Oregon? I don't think it's possible in our finite understanding to make sense out of all of this. I do not think it is possible. And if my faith or my capacity to have faith in a God rests on me understanding it all, all I am doing is holding God in arm's length and using that as an excuse to not consider is there something about this God that I don't know and understand? And even though I can't make sense of all these tragedies, I'm going to explore it even more. Because the ultimate question comes down to, in all of these, is can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Will God show up? Will God be there in the midst of these things when they happen? Will God be there for you when you make a mess of your life and you know you've blown it? Will God be there for you when you are not sure if you're going to pay all the bills? Will God be there for you when you're wondering what the future should be and it's muddy and you don't know where He wants you to go? Will God be there for you when you explore the pain from your past and you open those doors? Will God be there for you when you are treated wrongly and unfairly and unjustly and you wonder, God, where are you and why didn't you show up and do something? You see, the question that each one of us has to wrestle with is, can I trust the God of the universe, even though I don't understand all of the things that happen in this world and in my life that relate to pain, can I trust Him? Can I trust Him? Because you have a choice. You can say, I'm not going to, and you can hold Him out there and you can use all these things to keep you from ever moving towards God. Or you can say, in spite of those things, even though I don't understand those things, I recognize that God is present and God can be trusted in the midst of those things. Jeremiah the prophet, a little bit later in old Israelite history, wrote these words to the people of Israel. They were, they were in captivity at this time when he wrote these words. And they were in captivity not because they did something wrong and they got put in prison. They were in captivity for the sins of their ancestors. So think about how unjust that is. It's bad enough I'm responsible for my own wrongdoing, but imagine if you had to pay the price 
for your grandparents or your great-grandparents' wrongdoing. Well, that's what was happening here. And so look what the prophet Jeremiah says. He says, this is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. He says, I'm going to bring you back. 70 years are over, boom, you're coming back. For I know the plans I have for you. Look at this. Plans to prosper, not to harm, to give you hope. and a future. Plans to prosper, not to harm, to give you hope and a future. You see, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of things that are confusing that don't make any sense, I have to ask myself, do I believe that those things are really true? Do I trust that Somehow God's going to do this. You see, the tragedy isn't always out there. The tragedy isn't far away. The tragedy strikes close to home when we least expect it. I sat with one of, our, one of the families in our church this past week, and they were telling me the story of the, the man in our church whose stepdad tragically died suddenly just a couple weeks ago, Keith Mueller. And Keith was telling me the story that his mom had lived on her own. She had lost her first husband, his dad, when he was much younger and lived on her own for 28 years. And God had brought this man into, into her life and, and they had gotten married much later in life and he had never been able to have kids and, and um, he wanted sons more than anything else. And now he had two sons and they were family and these were his boys and he just poured his life into them and only for three short years and then suddenly, just like that, without any warning, he dies of a massive brain aneurysm. And Keith and his brother and his mom are just wondering, God, why this? Why now? You see, it's not just the tragedy and the loss out there that we hear every day when we click on the news or turn on and watch it. But the tragedy that hits close to home in our lives. And you see, some of you have had tragedy in your past, and that tragedy in your past has caused you to keep God at an arm's length, keep other people at arm's length, and you haven't, you haven't thrown God out the window, but you're certainly keeping Him way out there because you're not sure you believe that that really is true. The prophet Jeremiah goes on to say this. He says, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will seek you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole, with all your heart. Can we go back to 13, 12 and 13? He doesn't say, you'll call on me and then I will come. He said, I will bring you back and then you will call on me. You know, in the midst of these tragedies, in the midst of this confusion, in the midst of this misunderstanding... The reality is, is you don't feel like calling on God. Sometimes you don't want anything to do with God. You don't say that out loud for fear you might get struck by lightning, but you, there's a part of you that in the midst of this, there's massive confusion in your soul. And God says, even when you can't make sense of that, will you trust that I have your best in mind and when you experience a glimpse and a taste of that, then you will call on me 
And then you will seek me with all of your heart. Verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back. I will gather you and bring you back to the place from which I've called you into exile. You know, I don't know how God will do that. I don't know when God will do that. But I believe that God does do that. As you leave this morning, a few thoughts just for you in processing tragedy and justice in your life. The first is to grieve it. Grieve it. You hear us talk about this all the time. Don't stuff it. Don't ignore it. Don't spiritualize it. Don't Romans 8.28 it, you know. Just recognize that sometimes there are awful things that happen in life and there's no way to put a positive spin on that. Number two, if there's been an injustice that has taken place in your life, do something about it. Even though this was fulfillment of God's prophecy, was it right that these people were just brutally destroyed? There's a part of that that just wasn't right. And David said, I'm going to protect this guy the rest of his life. And you're going to be safe with me. Number three, take ownership if any exist. I mean, I don't know about you, but looking at the story, I think David had about that much ownership, and he still took it. And then lastly, await clarity about God's activity in the midst of tragedy and confusion. You know, one of the hardest things for us to do is wait. We as Americans, we as Westerners, we are used to everything instant. And to have to wait on God day after day and week after week and month after month. It's agonizing for us. But clarity doesn't always come quickly. Sometimes it takes time to see that. It takes time. I think the psalmist was referring to this in Psalm 126 when he said this, Verse 4 and 5, he said, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was the desert in the land of Israel. That's what the Negev is. He said, God, when are you going to put streams in the desert? He said, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Look at the next verse. He said, Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, you've got to put that seed in the ground. It doesn't come up instantly, does it? It takes time. It takes time. We'll return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. I don't know how. I don't know in what way. I don't know what His plan is going to be. But when God allows these things to come into our lives, even when they come very, very close to home, and many of you know, I've walked into that in my own life recently. It's not always going to be clear. It's not always going to make sense. It's not always going to feel good just because you're a follower of Christ. But you have that moment in time to decide, do I trust that even though I don't understand it all, I can't make sense of it all, that there's a God who's good, that there's a God who loves me, there's a God who's in this with me. And if I wait on Him, I might have a better understanding of what He's doing even right now. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just take a moment and meet with God. And 
Maybe there's something in your life right now that, as I've been talking, it's stirred up that you realize it's something you've been holding at arm's length, holding God at arm's length about. And you need to just take a moment and confess that to God and say, God, I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand it. And know that it's okay that you don't. Just say, in the middle of it, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to hope in you. And I'm going to wait on you. God, stories like this are just hard to read. We've seen enough tragedy in our own world and then have to read it in the Bible and make some sense out of it. It's just really confusing, God. And I just pray that this morning, as we looked at this event in the life of David, that... Um, we can walk away with a renewed sense of trust in our God. Knowing that even the worst injustice of an innocent man dying, hanging on a cross, made it possible for me and for everyone here have a relationship with God through Jesus. So Lord, help us to come to the face of the reality that in these times of confusion, these times of tragedy, and these times of injustice, um, more than anything else, God, we need you. In your name we pray. As the band comes on the stage to lead us through this final song, um, we often encourage you that we need one another to go through these difficult times. And it's great to have people there alongside of you, people supporting you, people encouraging you, people praying with you. But in those times when we're alone and there's times in the darkness of the night and the confusion of our thoughts, it's in those times we need to cry out to God. Make this song your prayer this morning.